All right, good morning. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we approach the end of this book. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 15. We always invite you to follow along in your Bible or on your device. We ask that you turn your device on sound low or no sound, whatever you want to call it, so that I don't have to make fun of you. (laughs) Although if you were here Christmas Eve, a baby cried just at the right moment. I mean, it was unbelievable. I didn't know what $20 could buy, but it did. So, The topic in this study, the Apostle Paul describes how God's grace launched him into a life of laboring for the gospel. The title of our message, Love's Labors Launched. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, uh, thanks for letting us be here this morning. Whether we're at the tail end of vacationing or have been back to work for several days, and, uh, you know, this is just our normal Sunday. It doesn't really matter, Lord. You've seen us here before time began. And you know that you want to speak to our hearts. Our hearts are sometimes difficult to penetrate, Lord, but not for the word. It can get there between the soul and the spirit where no one else can understand and no one else can speak. And so that's what we ask today. Uh, as far as we're able to, Lord, we want to open our hearts to you to hear from you. Do it through this text in a beautiful way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. 272 words, 10 sentences, three minutes to deliver, regarded by a majority as the greatest speech in American history. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It was delivered at the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on the afternoon of Thursday, November 19, 1863. The president was not the featured speaker at the dedication. Any of you history buffs know who was? I wouldn't know, it's Edward Everett, former representative, senator, and governor of Massachusetts. He delivered the keynote address. Everett's talk lasted a full two hours. Lincoln could say a lot in just a few words. He is outdone here by the Apostle Paul. Using just a few words, the Apostle totally and completely presents the gospel, the good news of God's salvation offered to mankind. You find the words in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. So think of it. The power to save a person for eternity can be delivered in about 10 seconds. It's my prayer that we will marvel at the profound simplicity of the gospel today as we work through this concise text. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are to express the simplicity of the gospel. And number two, you are to experience the stimulation of the gospel. Let's talk about its simplicity in verses one through four. Those of you who studied the Bible especially know that it's always a good idea to try to understand why something was written in the first place. It keeps us from misreading a text or from reading into it our own biases both of which are are common. As much as we'd like to feel we're open and unbiased, we really do bring biases to everything. So we have to really be careful about this. The believers in Corinth had received the gospel. They were saved. Some of them had embraced an incorrect view of the future resurrection of believers from the dead. Look at verse 12 for a moment. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
And so they believed that Christ had been raised from the dead, but they were now saying that there is no resurrection of the dead for believers in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote these verses to show them the logical inconsistency and the spiritual absurdity of their claim. Since Jesus has risen, so must his followers. And so that is the basic uh, idea that all of these verses are talking about. Knowing the context will help us get through a very difficult verse two right here at the beginning of the chapter. So let's begin in verse one, of course. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Paul had brought the gospel to the city of Corinth. The 10 second gospel message augmented by his teaching weekly in the synagogue was the power of God unto salvation. Many had received and had a new standing in Jesus. That's what that really means. Not that they took their stand, but that they had a new standing, a new position. God had justified him. They were in Christ, they were saved. Or were they? Because see, the next verse sounds troubling at first. Verse two, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Does Paul mean to say that salvation is a matter of my ability to hold fast that word? Some would say yes. I don't think that is what he meant here. He was not addressing the perseverance of the saints, but rather the logical conclusion of their incorrect teaching about the future resurrection of believers. It was commonly taught by Greek intellectuals that a person's soul, that immaterial part, was immortal, but that the body, the material part, was not. The Greeks rejected any thought of a physical resurrection of the body. This was always convenient for sinners because it eventually leads to the teaching that since your spirit is going to go on forever and your body's going to be done with, whatever you do with your body doesn't matter. And so you can go out and sin to your heart's content and it won't affect your spirit. They hadn't gotten to that part yet, but they were believing that there was no physical resurrection of believers. It was something they had allowed to creep into the church from the world. And of course they were wrong because in verses 12 through 19, Paul will argue that if the dead are not raised, then neither was Jesus raised. See, they were saying, well, Jesus was raised, but we won't be. And he says, no, that doesn't work that way. If we're not gonna be raised, he wasn't either. And then in verses 20 through 28, he'll argue that since Jesus has been raised, so will we. So here then is what I think Paul was saying in verse two to the saints in Corinth. If you do not hold fast the word which I preach to you, that is, if you reject the future physical resurrection from the dead, then it logically follows that Jesus did not rise from the dead and therefore believing in him is in vain. If this idea about there being no future resurrection was correct, it reduced the gospel to a lie that cannot save anyone, was logically inconsistent and spiritually absurd. And so this is a good example of why we need to read the verses preceding and following any Bible verse. Out of context, verse two makes it sound like we keep ourselves saved by persevering. But as I pointed out, Paul was not talking about perseverance, not at all. So speaking of the gospel, what is it? Well, here it comes in some of the most beautifully concise language you will ever encounter. Verse three and four, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so 
That's it. That's the gospel. If, if somebody asks you what is the gospel, you just go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 and say, here's what the apostle Paul says it is. First of all, that means first in priority. Whatever else Paul taught from the scriptures week by week and day by day, it was to expound upon the simplicity of the gospel. That's where it all starts because we need to be saved. Christ died for our sins. Christ connects the historical person, Jesus, with all the many prophecies and promises in the Old Testament that God would send Israel, the anointed one, the Christ, their Messiah and the world's savior. The fact that Christ died for our sins presupposes a separation between God and man whose penalty was death. It lets us know that the problem in the world is sin. For our sins tells you that Jesus Christ died as a substitute taking your place to satisfy the penalty for sin. According to the scriptures reminds you that everything God has said in his word was leading up to the death of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Beginning very early in Genesis and continuing all through the Old Testament, you have the story of the Messiah and Savior coming into the world, while in the meantime, lambs were being offered as a temporary substitute for sin. Then one glorious moment in human history, Jesus stepped forward, the prophesied and promised Christ, and was declared by John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I always like to point out, um, I, I just think it's interesting and important. Right there at creation, uh, you have the fall of Adam and Eve, and then you have God promising to provide himself a savior uh, to come into the world, the seed of the woman. And it's a reminder that though people say, well, there are religions that are older than Christianity, there is a common thought among non-believers and, and other religions that Christianity began with Jesus Christ in the first century. Christianity began with Jesus Christ in the Garden of Eden before there were any competing religions or philosophies or worldviews. And so uh, it, we are the oldest religion, I guess, if you want to put it that way in terms that people can understand. Nothing predates the Garden of Eden in terms of God's plan of salvation. So we're not a Johnny-come-lately Western or Middle Eastern religion. Uh, we are the biblical uh, way that people get saved and go to heaven. It says he was buried. That veris, uh, verifies that Jesus Christ was a real man in a real physical body. He died on the cross and was buried as a corpse in the tomb. He rose again in a real physical body, a glorified body fit for eternity. He has been raised and lives forever. The third day establishes that we are talking about the historic events that occurred in Jerusalem in the first century. And again, Paul said it was according to the scriptures. This phrase modifies the fact that Jesus Christ was raised, reminds us of the passages in the Old Testament like Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, where the death, burial, and resurrection of the future Messiah and Savior were prophesied and promised. And so just a few words, but as you meditate on them, you see that they expand out and give you a complete understanding of salvation from the garden forward. And so we would say that's it in the proverbial nutshell. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What I just said was 25 words. As I said earlier, it can be recited in less than 10 seconds. You can say more, a lot more, but it's all prefigured in this masterful declaration of the gospel. And so our exhortation today is don't forget to preach the gospel. 
Don't forget to give the clear message, and then you can expound on it as possible. Paul said he delivered what he had received, and that word received is another word that summarizes so much. It tells us that the gospel comes to us as a gift by God's grace. We can certainly understand gifts better this time of year because I would guess most of you gave and received gifts. And so it cannot be earned or discerned. It can't be discerned by human reason or earned by human works. It is God's free gift. It's all of grace to be received by faith as you believe. But here we see it must also be delivered. Reminds me of a telegram. Telegrams are short, concise messages that say something incredibly important. Person who delivers a telegram adds nothing to it. They only deliver it faithfully. Paul had received the gospel and he delivered it. We receive it and then we are to deliver it. We have a tendency to want to explain the gospel. For sure, we love the branch of theology called apologetics. It comes from the Greek word uh, apologia. It's a legal term that means a defense. I remember when I was a young Christian and people say, we're gonna give you the apologetic. I think, why are you gonna apologize for God? But the Greek word means to give a defense. It's the branch of Christian theology concerned with the intelligent presentation and defense of the historical Christian faith. And uh, so, you know, you've been online, you've gone to these sites uh, where they, uh, you know, uh, answer certain questions about the Bible and arguments and things like that. And so we can intelligently present all aspects of our faith. But the gospel itself is first something to deliver, not to explain, because it can't be discerned by human reason. You don't really convince somebody about the gospel so much as they receive it in their heart as the Holy Spirit frees their will to do so. And it is wonderfully explainable, but we are to deliver it so that it can be received. In other words, be more like Abraham Lincoln and less like Edward Everett. Uh, I know, you know, nobody likes to talk more than me, but even I have condensed my messages down to around 30, 35 minutes, right? Because I think more can be said in less time. If you have a lot of time, you can walk around and you can say, oh, where was I? Oh, I don't even need notes because I'm just talking. Uh, but uh, so we want to practice being concise. And, and I think sometimes it's a tool of the enemy. It's like, oh, what am I going to say? I haven't studied evolution. And, and what if they say this and that? You've got 10 seconds to give them the gospel. I was talking to somebody the other day at a potluck and uh, they said, so we're, we're good friends. And he said something to me. I said, you know what? You need to get saved. And it, it stunned him. I didn't ex expect that. But, uh, you know, you, you can say these things shortly and directly and then see where the conversation goes. Deliver what you received. Let the power reside in the word of God and not in your explanation. Have you ever tried to explain or talk about Jesus to somebody and then felt like a complete failure because they didn't have any response? Well, as long as you gave the word of God, it was a success because all you do is deliver. I mean, you might deliver a telegram and the person might shut the door in your face. There's, there's no reaction, do you? Uh, it's the news itself. And so don't worry about that. Just make sure you get the gospel out. Say more if there's an open door or an ongoing dialogue. 
It's simply profound. Pastor Chuck Smith often encouraged us pastors to, he would say, simply preach the word simply. What we are saying today is simply deliver the gospel simply. And so let's look at verses 5 through 11. You are also to experience the stimulation of the gospel. What would you guess is the most widely consumed psychoactive drug? Anybody want to just shout out what you think it is? I can't hear you. It's coffee. Well, actually, it's caffeine. Caffeine in any form, but mostly coffee. Caffeine is considered a psychoactive central nervous system stimulant. That's why people talk about being buzzed or wired or getting their caffeine fix. Coffee's called go juice, liquid energy, morning jolt, jitter juice. You probably have your own definitions. You, you haven't lived until you've been to a men's retreat and you see a bunch of guys just huddled around a coffee pot, like, I'm gonna kill you if you go first, kind of a thing. A person might drink a strong cup of coffee or a caffeine-loaded energy drink to either sober up or stay awake. That's interesting because the Bible sometimes describes believers as needing to awaken from a spiritual lethargy or to sober up in these last days. So it's a kind of an interesting analogy. By the way, today's uh, pastor's poor. <laughs> Anybody know what a chorador is? It's a Costa Rican coffee device. Uh, so if you're interested, I'll make you a cup with the chorador, but uh, can't help myself. Our stimulant is the gospel that saved and transforms us. The next few verses show the transformation the gospel accomplishes, stimulating our serving. So verse five, he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. We know Cephas better as the apostle Peter, if ever a man was transformed by the gospel, it was Peter. You see him trembling at the fire, afraid of the testimony of a servant girl. Then you see him bold to proclaim the gospel for a scoffing crowd of many thousands on the day of Pentecost. You see him flee from his Savior's crucifixion only to ask later in life, according to church history, to be himself crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Master. The 12 was the designation given by the early church to the original 11 disciples of Jesus and Matthias, who was properly chosen by Lot to replace Judas. These misfits went on to turn the world upside down, proclaiming the gospel. They were best described by their enemies as ignorant, meaning unlearned men who had been with Jesus. Now, we don't praise ignorance. So, uh, if you can study the Bible, you should. And uh, we're, we're even not against seminary, believe it or not. We joke about seminary. We call it cemetery uh, because so many people go there to die. Uh, they come out, they go in alive in Christ, and they come out some kind of dead doctrinal corpse. But uh, you have to recognize that you know that uh, colleges, they try and mold you into their image, basically. And so you have to be careful how you come out at the other end. And the way to do that is to know what they're trying to turn you into, know a little bit about what they're teaching, you know, and stuff. But, but we're not against, we're not against learning or education or anything like that. But these guys didn't have the opportunity to do that. And they do show that being with Jesus and just spending time in his word is sufficient 
for you to be able to preach the gospel and to disciple others. We don't know where or when the 500 brethren saw the risen Jesus Christ at once, but it emphasizes a radical transformation of the gospel because not only are we saved, but we become part of a huge supernatural family that is often stronger and closer than our natural family. There's an incredible supernatural union that takes place between those who receive the gospel and believe. Uh, I would gather to say anecdotally that almost always somebody who gets saved wants to hang out with other Christians and figure out what it's all about because they, they, they believe that they're in this forever family. Notice Paul's passing mentioned that some of them had fallen asleep. Maybe he was anticipating an argument from those who denied the resurrection that, hey, believers are dying and there's no sign of them being raised from the dead. Sure, they had died, but it was more like being asleep because their spirits were conscious in heaven and they would be reunited with their resting bodies at the resurrection and rapture of the church. And so Paul, you'll see in his writings when he talks about death, he refers to it as being asleep because you're not... Um, well, you're still consciously alive in heaven and your body's going to be resurrected. And so he said, hey, the best way we can understand that is it's like your body is sleeping, but you're conscious and alive, absent from your body and present with the Lord. As I was reading this, I, I, I thought that I should remind you that we should always bear in mind these first century believers had very few biblical resources. They had the Old Testament and it was not silent with regard to the physical resurrection of the dead but it was somewhat hushed. It didn't give a lot of information about the resurrection of believers. As far as the New Testament, we have all 27 books. According to one timeline I consulted, the only books, or we would say letters, that were written prior to 1 Corinthians were James, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Galatians. And so, at best, those would be the only writings that these uh, believers in Corinth were familiar with. And that doesn't mean that they really had exposure to those letters. It does mean that most of what we call the New Testament was not available to them. And what's interesting to me is that, uh, and I don't say this to shame anybody because I have to stop and think about it sometimes, most believers are still confused about the resurrection of the dead. And so how much more the Corinthians Add to that the lure of Greek philosophy and you, have a rep, uh, you understand where they're coming from. I always, even when I teach sometimes about the order of the resurrection from the dead, and we'll do that as we get deeper into the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15, Lord willing, people come up and they say, now, is this what you said? Is this what's going to happen? Yeah, and, and, and it's just a little bit, I'm not saying it's mysterious or ununderstandable. It's just difficult sometimes for people. And in a nutshell, the Bible talks about the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection is a resurrection to heaven. And it, it goes on over a period of time. And this is the confusing part to people. Jesus was called the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. That means he was the first one to be raised who would never die again and be taken to heaven. And then as you go through the Bible, there are other resurrections of the righteous. For example, the rapture and the resurrection of the church is going to be a future resurrection of the righteous. And then at some point, there's going to be a resurrection of the tribulation saints. 
and of the Old Testament saints. And once all the believers from all of time are resurrected over a period of time, that is the first resurrection and it's done. So it doesn't happen all at once. When the Bible says the first resurrection, it's not all believers all at once. It happens over a period of time. The second resurrection is a unique single event. It is the resurrection from the dead of all non-believers to stand before the great white throne judgment in the book of the Revelation and to be found unsaved because they didn't trust Christ and to be cast alive into the lake of fire. And so it's, it's clear, but it's, it, it, it's not always understood. And so if we have a hard time with it, and a lot of believers do, imagine these Corinthians who had, of course, they had Paul teaching them for a while, but, um, you know, a year and a half he spent with them, that's really not a long time. You know, we sometimes, we've been in one book of the Bible sometimes for a year or a year and a half, a gospel or a long book. And so there's only so much you can say. And so they were confused and they were wrong, but uh, at least I understand why. It says here, Jesus was seen by James. Now, this James was the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. What is remarkable here is that James and Jude and the other siblings of Jesus who grew up with him did not believe in him until after the resurrection. But then what a transformation. James rose to a position of leadership in the Jerusalem church. He wrote a letter that challenges believers to this very day to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Then by all the apostles, that tells us there were others who were considered apostles in the first century. Those were guys who primarily went around establishing churches. They were stimulated into church planting. And so verse eight, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. The number one persecutor of Christians Paul was transformed on the road to Damascus by an encounter with the risen Lord. He refers to it as being born out of due time. His was an untimely birth. By this, it seems Paul meant that he came later. He lacked the advantages of the believers he just mentioned. Yet God could and did call him into serving him. We're more like Paul than we are Peter and the, the other 11 in that, um, you know, we come later. Verse 10, <clears throat> but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than all of them, yet uh, not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. He came off after the others, but his untimely birth was not a hindrance to his zeal. Grace, 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 he repeats. It was all the gift of God. Yet grace stimulated a response from Paul. He labored more abundantly than all of them. Clearly, he's not boasting. It was a known fact that Paul outworked others. He took no credit. And this is just true of some people, right? In uh, just out in the world or even in the church, you can look at people and say, man, that guy's doing everything. That guy works way harder than me. And they might say they do, uh, but it's not a boast if it, you, you take no credit. It was just a known fact that Paul outworked others. Verse 11, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Again, the messenger is insignificant. Peter, James, the 12, the other apostles, the 500, all had received the same gospel, all delivered it to others. The gospel stimulated Paul and these others, he mentioned, to labor more abundantly. It can sound like a contradiction. If it's all by grace, how can you talk about how much you're doing for God? Not a contradiction for Paul. Grace was so real to him that it propelled him. 
redirected all of his natural energies towards serving Jesus. We are definitely not talking about doing works of righteousness by which we consider ourselves more spiritual than others. We're not talking about lists of do's and don'ts that set us apart from others and make us appear to them to be more spiritual. We're talking about the bent and the passion of our heart. I labor more abundantly for Jesus because of what he has done and is continuing to do in me. That's why we try to talk to you about more about rather what God has done and is doing for you than what you ought to be doing for God. Our response is a response to God's grace. It's a loving response. It's not a pressured or coerced response. Uh, churches are famous, unfortunately, for coercing people into doing what they want, nor mostly giving more money. Uh, but there are many other ways that they coerce people into serving and, and all, and, and um, that's not, not grace. Grace says, Look at what God has done. And if you don't want to respond to that, there's nothing we can do to stimulate you. Or we can for a while, but then you're going to burn out. By the way, I don't want to get off on a tangent. And if you know me, you always know that I say that when I'm going to get off on a tangent. But <laughs> that's like a disclaimer so that I can be held harmless. But, and I want to say this carefully. I, I probably shouldn't say this at all, but I'll flesh it out as time goes on. But a lot of people in the church... Talk about burnout. Uh, pastors, they get burned out. Elders, deacons, servants, you know, they all get burned out. From one point of view, if your source of energy is what? Not what, but who? The Holy Spirit. You cannot exhaust the Holy Spirit. You can't really burn out of his energy. And so what I found oftentimes is that people burn out because they've been coerced into doing something that they were never called or equipped to do. Uh, and, it, and it grates on them because they're doing it in the energy of the flesh. And that's where spiritually you get burned out when you do things in the energy of the flesh. And so a person that's burned out, if you're burned out today, spiritually speaking, uh, you need to retreat to the Lord and ask him for the constant filling of his Holy Spirit and rearrange some things in your life because it's in one sense impossible to be burned out if you're walking with him the way you ought to be. And so... Um, does my understanding of grace make me lazy? Am I cruising through life taking advantage of God's abundance while giving him nothing? If so, I don't understand his grace at all. And so the bottom line, because of his grace, I should always be doing more, not less, until he calls me home. But I do it not out of duty, but out of devotion. Paul can honestly say, I labor more abundantly. Do I labor more abundantly or less? If your answer is less, don't just do more. Don't start there. You'll only get discouraged. Draw closer to the Lord. Enter into a deeper understanding of his grace in your life. Think hard upon the gospel which was delivered to you and by which you were saved. Be stimulated by what the Lord has done for you. And then you'll want to try and outgive him and you just can't. Let's pray.